Today we're going to continue on with our series called Gospel, which is a journey with Jesus, looking at various events and teachings in his life leading all the way up until his death and resurrection on Easter. And the goal really is for us to be able to present uh, these components of Jesus' activity on earth leading up until Easter that gives this accurate, organized, inspiring picture of who Jesus is, his ministry, his teaching, and his passion. And today we're going to look at one of the primary collections of teachings that Jesus had. Many people thought that these are his most influential teachings found in Matthew chapter 5, uh, chapter 6, and chapter 7. It is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, to you verse-by-verse teaching purists, I'm sorry to disappoint you today, but we're not going to go over it verse by verse. It's just too much. And that can seem difficult for some because those of you who love the verse by verse teaching, these are like Jesus' most influential teachings. How could we not look at them verse by verse and go uh, and understand the context and all, all the, the thought behind it and the theology behind it? You're going to be very disappointed today because. This is not what we're going to do. We're going to look at some big themes regarding the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to draw a, a few passages out of it, and we really want to understand some of the bigger uh, thought, thoughts behind the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what we're going to do today. And the Sermon on the Mount is extreme. It's just extreme teaching. Anyone who says that it's this beautiful sermon that Jesus gave, and I love the Sermon on the Mount, most likely has never read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety because this is extreme teaching. I mean, this is the teaching that's the, you know, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, pray for your enemy, somebody who wants one, you should give them two. I mean, this whole thing, the Sermon on the Mount is just extreme, and it's not easy, and it's not easily palatable sometimes. And really what the Sermon on the Mount is, is it's the value system in which God operates. So if you love it, well, good luck, right? This is, this is the value system above the value system, the kingdom above the kingdom. This is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount would be what your life would look like if you had perfect faith in God. If you had this perfect walk with Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is what your life would look like. Now, the setting of this was Jesus as he's teaching. He has his disciples following him. They're eager to learn and they're eager to understand more. But as Jesus is teaching, he begins to create this multitude of people who want to hear from him. So here's Jesus as his disciples are following him and learning. He finds himself on this uh, base of this uh, common mountain near Galilee, and he begins then to go up, and the crowds follow him, and he begins to teach. And there's almost like this parallel of when Moses went up to the Mount Sinai and got the laws of, for the people, the Ten Commandments. And here we almost see this parallel of Jesus going up, not on this famous Mount Sinai, but this commonplace mountain near Galilee, that he, where he's not necessarily getting new law, but where we see him say he's fulfilling the law. And there's something new and different in what is about to take place. And there's three sections 
to the Sermon on the Mount. There is the first is the Beatitudes. That's the blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who, who are persecuted. We'll look at that passage in its entirety in just a second. And then Jesus moves into, he starts to teach more about the law and the the heart of the law, that there's these laws that Moses put into place and people had questions about how are we supposed to live that out to this day? And Jesus begins to teach a little bit more in depth on, well, it's not just the, the laws, but it's the heart behind the law, the real heart of the matter. And then he also then teaches about the practices of our faith. He does a lot in a very short amount of time. So this is just three chapters in the Bible and he goes pretty in-depth and covers a very vast, wide amount of thought and knowledge in this small section. And uh, that's what we're going to look at today. And we won't look at it in its entirety, just a small bits and pieces. So Jesus begins his sermon by teaching us what blessing is, those beatitudes. And and for most people who were hearing Jesus and that were up there as disciples and this multitude of people, this was real, it was probably unexpected to the people who were listening because their view of blessing was probably similar to ours. And most of us probably feel like, well, what blessing is, is like what makes you happy. The things in your life that make you happy or you find some sort of fulfillment. And, and these people... Uh, who were listening probably had a similar mindset of what makes me happy. If you know, you're given riches or maybe you get a promotion, whatever it may be, things that make you happy. Or You don't have to go too far to understand what people think a blessed life is. Many of you have probably gone on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatnot and you've made your hashtag blessed life post, right? Or you've, you've gone and been, I'm so blessed today. And then you can go look, the, you can look all those hashtags up, right? But if you go and look up hashtag so blessed, hashtag blessed life, or living the blessed life, you can see in general what people feel like blessing is. So I did a little bit of the research for you, and I've just found out probably posts that maybe you've made before yourself, and that's okay. But just to understand, well, what do people feel like, you know, the so blessed life is? So I, here's this first one from Instagram I found from someone that says, happy Aloha Friday, beautiful, hashtag beautiful day, hashtag so blessed. And can't you just hear the words of Jesus on the, this mountain that says, blessed are those who find themselves on a Hawaiian beach on a Friday afternoon <laughs> with a margarita in hand. Mm, so blessed. Here's another one I found, a little more simple. Found this beautiful white feather today. So blessed. So blessed to find this white feather. Now, I, I scrolled over to Twitter just to see, like, well, what are some, like, one-liners? People were just tweeting in Twitter and just kind of seeing their thoughts. Here, here's this first one I found a hash, under the hashtag so blessed. When you get an A on a test, you didn't study for it. So blessed. Just feel so blessed about that. Yeah, can't you just picture Jesus on the mountain? You know, blessed are those who take very little aspiration in their studies, yet still get your A. Here's another one I found. Hashtag so blessed when you get both eyes eyeliner right on the first try. Ladies, come on. We know that's living the blessed life, right? Uh, here's one more. 
when there's still a bit of pizza left when you get home. Hashtag so blessed. You know what I'm talking about, high school student or college student. When mom and dad, they, they left two pieces of Papa Murphy's pizza left in the fridge and it didn't get eaten by the time you got home from school. Ooh, that's the blessed life right there. Can't you just picture Jesus? Blessed are those who find an extra slice of Papa Murphy's pizza. Living the blessed life. Now, most likely, you've made a post like this, whether it be when you were on your you know, Caribbean getaway or when you were out in the wilderness or whatever it may be, or that you found yourself at a nice restaurant and you took a picture of your food and you said, hashtag, living the blessed life. But what we see that Jesus does here is he kind of takes what we think blessing is, which is usually found in what we feel like happiness or whatever that may be, and he contrasts it with, well, what does God's view of blessing look like? And it's nothing like what we think. When some of these difficult things happen in life, well, God is still at work in the midst of him. So this is what Jesus says as he begins the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, chapter five, verses three. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not call his people to follow him with this premise of unbounded wealth or perfect health. He does promise blessing, but sometimes... They will be experienced in the midst of pain, in the midst of rejection, or in the midst of loss. Really, to be blessed in the, in the sense that Jesus is talking about isn't to be on the beach or to have the extra slice of pizza, but to be blessed means to be able to re- relate to God in a particular way. To relate to God around mourning or uh, to being meek or hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are the people who are merciful, pure in heart, as we relate to God. Now, what does this exactly look like in today? Well, think of you have two people. They work at different jobs. Person one has worked at a job for 20 years. Person two has worked at a job for about the same time, 20 years, or five years, doesn't really matter. And this person is up for promotion. They've worked hard, they've tried to do the right things, and they get the promotion. It comes with a big raise, and then they post on Instagram later that night that they're out at, you know, Twigs having a celebration dinner, living the blessed life. So blessed. And then you have person number two, has worked hard, always tried to do the right thing, lived a good and holy life. Yet someone else at the same business like undercut them, sold them short, you know, like lied about them, whatever it may be, and they got the promotion instead of this person. Well, now is that person like all of a sudden there's no blessing found there? 
Or does what Jesus say is that even in the midst of rejection or pain, those who mourn, those who who are pure in heart, those who try and seek righteousness, well, there's still blessing found in that. Yet the outcome, it just may be different from what we expect that this person's outcome sure was, you know, the sappy Instagram post and a pay raise, but the person over here, those who continue to follow Jesus and find blessing in the midst of that, well, what, well, what do they find? What they find and what they experience is comfort, satisfaction, mercy, and what Jesus says ultimately, they experience the kingdom of God. Well, what about a mom who you know, tries and struggles all day long with the kids and you know, on one day they do every technique under the sun, right? They, they're using their love and their logic and they're using this and that and whatever, all the baby wise stuff, whatever it may be, and just the day goes terribly. It's just a horrible day. Like hashtag not blessed, right? But then the same mom on another day, they do the same thing, yet the kids are just a wonderful joy and treat. Moms, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that one day you can feel like you're not blessed at all, yet the very next day you didn't do anything different, but your kids were amazing that day, and you just feel like you're you're living the blessed mom life. But what Jesus says that is no, that those who seek righteousness and have a pure heart and those who are blessed, you know, that have mercy, there's still blessing found in the midst of those times. What about the student who's trying to reach their campus? You're trying to reach your high school or your college campus with your faith in Jesus, yet what you find on the other side of, let's say, a year being semi-difficult in that is you find none or few friends in the midst of it. And you just wonder, there's no way this is where blessing is found. That I'm trying to do everything I am to reach my campus, yet on, where I find myself is with very few people who want to be around me. Is there really blessing in that? And what Jesus says is, those who are persecuted for righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is a blessed life to be had, that there is comfort and satisfaction and there is mercy and there is the kingdom of heaven even in the midst of difficult times. Blessing is found not necessarily in the good things we experience in life, but blessing is found when we follow Jesus. Blessing is setting aside our world's value system and striving for God's value system of our world. So what do you find in that? That's the comfort and satisfaction and mercy. Jesus, his view of blessing is strikingly different. But then he takes it like another level deeper, and he starts to go into the, the heart of the law and the practice of our faith. And this next section, it kind of upends our expectation of what we think pleases God. Because what would make sense is as long as I'm doing the things that you told me to do, God, well, that should make you happy. And as long as I'm doing the things that you said, that should find, I should find fulfillment. And the expectations that we set of following these rules, and there's a lot of these rules, what Jesus says here 
is he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to just say that all of that is gone and it's just this free-flowing life now, that you kind of just do what you want and grace abounds, you know, cool man. But I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. That he's saying there's still these guardrails in life that you just have to, to have to walk in life in, and those still protect you. Yet at the same time where what made you right in the eyes of God, which was following all these laws, I have come to fulfill that and what Moses put in place and the other prophets have put in place. I've come to fulfill that. And now what makes you right in the eyes of God is having and following me, Jesus Christ, having a relationship with me. I've come to fulfill those. Yet I haven't abolished them. The guardrails are still there. So here comes Jesus on a few really key issues that it's not just about the behavior, but it's the matter of the heart. It's not just about checking the box and making sure you're doing the right thing or having like a good picture understanding of the right thing, but he begins to get at something a little bit deeper, which is our heart. And where Jesus says things, he'll kind of use these kind of phrases like, you've heard it said like... And he'll go into something, you've heard it said that adultery this, you've heard it said that about murder this, and say, but I say to you, and then he takes it one level deeper. So he talks about a, a whole host of things in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about murder, and he said, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder, but I say to you that even if you hate your, or even if you have hate for your brother, well, that could be potentially similar in the eyes of God. He says, you should do everything possible to go make it right. He tells us we should be the light of the world. He talks about divorce and adultery and oaths and retaliation, where he says, you've heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but what I tell you is you should turn the other cheek. Maybe you've heard that one before. And he, ta he talks about giving to the needy, that you shouldn't do it in a, in a way that draws attention to you. You should give to the needy secretly, that it's not about you, it's about just giving, being open-handed, you know? And, he, and then he talks about the golden rule, that do unto others as uh, you would want others to do unto you. He talks about worry and anxiousness. And Olivia covered that just a few weeks ago on how we should, uh, what worry looks like. You know, the whole hakuna matata thing that she talked about. And he goes into all these various other sections of judging others and all this stuff. And we can't cover everything because it's too much. But we have to understand what, Jesus is talking about, he cares more about our heart than understanding just the letter of the law. It's much more about where's your heart at in the midst of this? Where's your heart at in the midst of when we talk about giving? Where's your heart at in the midst of when we talk about anger? Where's your heart at in the, when we talk about loving others? He cares much more about the heart and I'm going to read you one section that, it, that maybe for American culture, it's one of the most striking and most difficult to swallow or palate. And I don't do this to call one person out or anything, but just to understand the extreme nature of what Jesus is talking about. And understanding what Jesus wants, not only for us to look at the law, but he wants us to look at our heart. So here's all these people, the multitudes of people that are there, and Jesus' disciples, and 
I'm sure that they have questions galore and Jesus is just talking and it's like, you know, blowing their mind. And so here's where he says, he says in Matthew 5, verse 27. He says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wait, wait, what were you saying? If your right eye causes you to stumble, we'll gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole part to be thrown into hell. Okay, Jesus, wait, now you're talking about hell? And then he, and then he, he goes on. He says, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole part to go into hell. Okay, now you're talking about hell twice. And it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Hold on, Jesus, I don't think you understand what divorce is. Again, you've heard it said that it was said to uh, the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the Lord's vows and made it and something about a footstool. And okay, okay, somehow I've lost. I've, I've, I've got lost here. I've lost two of my body parts. Half of me is going to hell. I'm an adulterer for some reason because of something I did and something about an oath. I don't think I can be a Christian. Like this is, this is way above me. Now, we could go into detail about all this and all the stuff that he said, but you know what? I only have about eight to 10 minutes left, and you don't want to go into that. I don't want to go into that. It's too, you know, it's hard, difficult for you. It's difficult for me, but what we can do is we can draw maybe one or two things out of it. First thing is this. Again, it's about the heart. In essence, well, God's view of lust isn't that different than his view of adultery. It's really about the heart. God's view of lust really isn't that much different than his view of adultery. And then the second thing is that it's really, really, really hard to have a valid reason for divorce. Jesus sets the bar really high. And the Pharisees and disciples, you know, they all wonder about this. And they come back to Jesus later. And you see this in Matthew 19 where they go, hey, we had some follow-up questions about some stuff. You know, this was kind of intense. Tell us again about the whole marriage and divorce thing. And, and so Jesus goes in. You should go read this out of Matthew 19. It's just fascinating. And he begins to tell them about the oneness and, you know, what, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Maybe you've heard that before in, a, in wedding vows or something, like let no man separate. And essentially what Jesus begins to explain and tell them is you can't unone something. You know, you can't take your scrambled eggs and then put it back into two eggs. Like it's, it's really hard and it's really difficult. And he goes about this with the, the Pharisees and they say, wait, but I thought Moses said that you could give a certificate of divorce. And then Jesus says, well, that's, that's what Moses did because of the hardness of your heart. He just permitted it to happen. He didn't say that it should be happening. And so then he goes into this and he gives this explanation. And then this is what the disciples do. They leave. And this is what they say in chapter 19 of Matthew. They go, it would be better for a man not to get married in that case. And Jesus goes, and just kind of moves on and walks away. And then what we see is God's value system, his picture of what we have is far higher, or maybe a better word would be deeper than what we said. Now, that being said, if you're someone who married someone who had been divorced, or maybe you're divorced yourself, well, does that mean that like you're an adulterer and this and that and that? 
Um, what I would say to you is, remember the passage at the same time that you have to contrast it with is, what about Jesus with, with the woman actually caught in adultery? And he picks her up and he, he shushes all the accusers away. And he says, hey, you messed up, but go and sin no more. I love you. And so what this means is it doesn't mean that you're just off the hook because grace abounds. But what it does mean is that, that if you experience God and you experience his grace and you have a healthy view and you confess, well, there's still grace there. Jesus sets the bar really, really high. And I would encourage you to go read the entire Sermon on the Mount and Matthew chapter 19 if you have more questions on that. Because I think it... it speaks for itself more if you read it. Jesus sets this bar really deep. It's not just about the law, but it's about, hey, where's your heart in this? Where's your heart when it, in regards to values and what we've talked about? And it's not just about the, the behavior, but it is the status of your heart. What pleases God isn't necessarily just obedience, but it's your heart status during the obedience. We need more of Jesus in order to make this possible. There's no way you could read through the Sermon on the Mount. We just read one section of it. And that enough was like, oh my gosh, like, whoo, is church over yet? We read one section of it. And you could read the entire thing and every point along the way, you'd be like, oh, goodness. There's no way that we could live the life that Jesus talks without more of him. You just have to have more of Jesus. Without Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is not possible. So a great question for you is, well, where's your heart today? Where's your heart today regarding many of these various issues you know, uh, about murder and anger and lust and adultery and divorce and marriage and giving to the needy and this, all these verses. Where's your heart today in those? Jesus cares deeply about that. And we need more of him if we're going to make that possible. Billy Graham said this in one of his uh, quotes. He's, he said, being a Christian is more than just an instantaneous conversion. It is a daily process whereby you grow to be more and more like Jesus. It's not just about raising your hand and then just doing the things you have to do, but it's a process daily we enter into to become more and more like Jesus, to adopt his mindset, his attitudes, and his heart for our life. Jesus teaching us that pleasing God is different than what we expected. And that there's always more to experience. There's always more to experience when it comes to Jesus. There's always more to experience whether you're new and you haven't followed him very long or never followed him at all or you've been following him your whole life. There's always more. Now I'm sure what the disciples thought at this point and the people were like, man, he just went through the Sermon on the Mount and like, I have more questions about that. And I'm sure even just off of the one section we read, you're probably like, I got a few questions about that. I want more. And this is probably where the disciples were at and they actually ended up falling up on various different things. But it's like going to a good concert and everyone's chanting one more song. Or it's like being at a restaurant, you just want one more bite. That there's something about how Jesus leaves this for us to want more that it sparks curiosity in our heart and in our mind. It sparks something in us that we say, well, I want more of what you're having to say, not just the knowledge piece, but more of who you are. And I believe that we are all 
leaders and influencers somewhere in our lives, whether that be at home, at work, at school, in the hobbies. And along with that, I believe that what Jesus has to say will greatly increase influence where we're impacting people if we embrace what Jesus said, live it out, and confess where we went wrong, and then ask for more. And I pray that by you seeking more of Jesus, you'll find your mission, your slice of the greater pie that is God's great plan of redemption and where you fit in with that, where you will greatly impact the world, not just for yourself, but for the sake of the gospel. So I got one homework assignment for you, and I really want you to do this. And what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to get out your pen and paper if you have it or your phone. I'm giving you... uh, permission to do that. Get your phone out. Here's your one homework assignment. I want you to write this down. Is one is to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read the whole Sermon on the Mount. Don't just blaze through it really quickly because you'll miss a lot of uh, stuff in there if you just read through it quickly. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. It won't take you more than five or ten minutes. And write down these three words. Embrace, confess, and ask. Embrace, confess, and ask. And as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, what I would ask you to do is to embrace Jesus. Embrace the teachings of Jesus. Embrace what he says, the guardrails he sets up. Embrace the the various difficulties that he talks about in our lives and in culture and the standards that he sets. Embrace it. Don't just fluff it off and say, that was 2,000 years ago. That's not for today. We know that Jesus is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever, and that the word of God is living and active for today. Embrace his teaching. And as you embrace his teaching, as you read through it, there's going to be things, even like the one passage we looked at today regarding marriage, that's going to potentially convict you, and others as well, around anger and giving, all this stuff. As you embrace his teaching... Would you confess where you know you've messed up? That's all you really can do, right? Because the bar that Jesus sets, it's unattainable without him. Confess your sin. Confess the areas where you have messed up. You can't experience grace for something without confessing it. And then lastly, ask for more. Ask for more of the grace of Jesus. Ask for more of him. Ask that you'd you'd have more curiosity regarding your faith in scripture. Ask for more of Jesus' faith and goodness in your life. Ask for more in that process. So let me leave you with these final words. And they're not my words, they're Jesus' words. This is how he ended the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in chapter seven, verse 24. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash." And what I ask of you is the very thing that Jesus asked, is put it into practice. Embrace the teachings of Jesus. Confess where you need to and ask of more. And I believe that this 
holy, awesome book, the Bible, is where you will find more of Jesus. And I believe that as you read this and open it, and as you embrace the teachings that you see in it, and you just go, I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to embrace these very things. And in the areas where I feel convicted, I'm going to confess. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn us and tell us how wrong and bad you are. What the Holy Spirit does is it convicts us to, so that it would drive us in order to experience the grace of God. God just wants you to experience more of him. So as you feel convicted, we'll confess that so that you'll experience grace. And then begin to ask more. God, I want more of you. And I believe as you do that, daily, every day, not five days a week, every day, but start where you can, that will begin to build a foundation on your life. And over time, that foundation will be set as you seek more and more of Jesus. You become more and more, like Reverend Graham said, it's a daily process becoming more and more like Christ. And as you do that, you'll experience more of him. And your heart will begin to align with the value system of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. God, thank you that what you call us to is something so much deeper than the world sets its standards to. God, I pray that we'd embrace your teaching. We wouldn't fluff it off. We wouldn't get in a prideful position to feel like it's not for me. Lord, but we would embrace what you have. We'd put it into practice. God, we'd confess in the areas of our life that whether ignorantly just because we didn't know or because it was selfishly because we did know and we still did it wrong. God, that we confess, God, we experience your grace and you'd inspire us to always ask for more, that there's more of you to be had today. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in your name, amen. Thank you, Nathan. Let's stand up together. Great words, great challenge from God's word to us to walk it out this week to be reading uh, Matthew 5 through 7, and uh, let's look for Jesus there. Hey, if you're newer or newer to the church, I'll be right over here underneath this monitor to meet with you for a few moments, and if you need prayer, our prayer team is right over on this side of the stage, ready to meet with you and pray with you. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.